0: Hi, anyone and everyone. Welcome to Have You Heard About This Case. My name is Sam. And my name is Kelly. Today, I am bringing you a crazy story of Irish Americans, mafia warfare, and my family directly in the center of the action in Cleveland, Ohio.
1: Before we start today, um, we don't want to do our typical question that we do at the top of the episode. Instead, we want to thank everybody for listening. Yes, this is the first episode we're recording since we release, and it has been a Mm mind-blowing response. Mm -hmm. And we want to thank everyone who has listened. Yes, absolutely. We also very specifically want to thank the prosecutors. They immediately tweeted us out. Thank you. Um, I've been a Patreon for their of theirs for many years, and basically since they got their Patreon. I signed up for them, and I reached out to them. And Sam, turned <laughs> yeah, they're w- they're wonderful. They they have a lot of really great insight, and I really like what they bring to podcasting as prosecutors. Absolutely. And I, they've answered a lot of questions for me as we've kind of been going on this podcasting journey together. I, I've just had random audio questions mm-hmm. or software questions, and I reach out to them, and they've always been fantastic. So I, I reached out to them just saying, like, thank you for your help. We finally did it. We launched. And no questions asked. Within minutes, they had our show tweeted out on their Twitter. Um, and so that, that was a really big deal to us. It
0: was so lovely. Yeah.
1: So we want to thank them. Yeah, and if so any of you haven't listened to them or you didn't come from them, please go listen to them. They're great. But let's get straight to our case. We don't want to take up too much time. Um, so why don't you tell us? What's happening here, Kelly? Okay. So
0: here here we are, everyone. Usually, we do our questions so that you learn a little about Sam and myself. Well, today, you're going to learn even more about my family as this case is steeped in my family lore. I'm going to start with just some context that will bring us to the scene of the many many crimes in Cleveland, Ohio. Like many americans i have a strong irish background it comes from my mother who is also half german hi mom but mostly from my father whose family is all irish all the time i'll start with my name you all know that i am kelly well the name is in the family and it was given to me as it was my irish grandmother's maiden name oh I didn't know that. yeah kelly is one of the most common surnames in ireland but I had some luck on Ancestry.com, and through the amazing family history that has been documented by my uncle, he was able to trace our family line to County Wicklow in Ireland, where my five-times-great-grandfather emigrated from to America.
1: Oh, that's cool to know.
0: And apparently it's, I think, pretty common to name your children after your mother's maiden name. At least around the time my father was having babies. <laughs> oh, really? That's cool. Yeah, I think it's, I, I think it, you know, it might be an Irish thing. I'll have to Google it later. But I know that frequently names are handed down. And I I love Ireland. And I'm so happy I've gotten to visit the exact county where my family originated. Carry on the family name even generations later and experience the criminally underrated musical city where I stayed in Dublin.
1: I can second that. I loved music while I was in Dublin. It is
0: so underrated. The music is incredible.
1: Yeah, I know we've mentioned it in other episodes, but it's true. It's so true.
0: If you want live music, real live music, go to Dublin. And we also made some new friends over there through this whole podcasting journey, Nancy and Becca over at Insane Investigations. So it's just another little thank you from us. Give them a listen. They're so friendly and engaging. And I hope you enjoy them. They're bringing cases from across the Atlantic, so they're likely going to be another case that you haven't heard anything about. Yeah, they're
1: a lot of fun to listen to, and they have been so wonderful to chat with. We've recently exchanged they're some promos so with lovely. them. The and it's it's really been just strictly enjoyable to talk with them.
0: Oh, absolutely. Just so nice, so nice. A little more about me. So okay. well, all that's true. I love Ireland. I was raised very much with the knowledge that we are Irish-Americans. Our country has its problems, but I always claim it. We're a young country, we're a different country, and I'm beyond grateful to have been raised here. More specifically, on my father's side, almost... Immediately upon emigrating, they settled in Cleveland, Ohio. Ever since, my family has resided there, going back almost 130 years. Oh, wow. Cleveland's Irish population is very active. And we have one of the oldest St. Patrick's Day parade records, with it being in 1867.
1: Oh, that's cool. I didn't know that there was so many Irish descendants in Cleveland. I've never been to Cleveland, but...
0: Yeah, I don't know that it's... It's obviously not as much of a hub is Chicago, but it definitely has a strong Irish community there from at least my experience. The parade was always important to my family, and though I never met my wonderful grandparents we will speak of today, they were known to rally the entire Kelly family, my dad and his brothers and sister, and all their first cousins to stand on the steps of Cleveland City Hall to watch the parade. Growing up in school, my dad always made a point to pull me out for the day so that we could go and watch the parade together.
2: <laughs> cool.
0: Always meeting up with family and braving the still cold air to hear the music, watch the dancers, remember our Irish heritage, and just appreciate the representation in our own city. For context, Ohio is the Midwestern state that borders Lake Erie. It's the one shaped almost like a heart. Even more specifically, the city of Cleveland is in northeastern Ohio, and sits almost directly on the lake's edge. I know that I've used the word proud a lot in this intro, but I really am so proud that my family settled in Cleveland, and they immediately set out to improve their community and never to abandon it, no matter how many times our football teams lose.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Sound like a
2: Cubs fan now. Sorry, guys.
0: I'm immensely proud of specifically my father, who started working for the city when he was only a teenager and recently retired from working full-time for the city of Cleveland. Cleveland is also the scene of all the crimes we will discuss today, and we are going to talk more to my father as a primary source for this investigation. He has met nearly all the people that we will discuss and has had first-person interactions with them including the most infamous, the criminal we're going to discuss today, Danny Green.
1: I'm so excited for this because I feel like you've been teasing me for a couple weeks. You haven't given me any (laughs) real information about anything, but you keep texting me, I just figured something else out. This is crazy. (laughs) For weeks.
0: It's wild, you guys. You know, there's a lot as we go through the script, you all will realize this story happened so close to my family. It was happening around my family. (laughs) Like every, you'll see. It's, It's quite remarkable.
1: I'm excited to get into it.
0: First, I'm going to mention that Danny Green's Wikipedia page is widely not credited anywhere. And citation needed appears frequently. So I wouldn't believe everything that's on his Wikipedia page. But with the backing and knowledge of the research I did, I feel like I can speak to it here. There's also a movie that was released in 2011 called Kill the Irishman, stars Ray Stevenson as Danny Green and also features Christopher Walken and Vincent Benafrio. The movie is a great watch and I recommend it. However, we're lucky we have my dad and other first person accounts from a documentary who can help us separate what is truly fact. From what is debated about Daniel John Patrick Green?
1: Yeah, I'm sure they took their artistic liberties creating the movie in some instances.
0: Absolutely. And I, I have at least one instance of that here where we'll talk about something shown in the movie was sort of license. What's undebatable is that Danny Green had a rough beginning. On November 14th, 1933, Daniel John Patrick, Danny Green, was born in Cleveland, Ohio, to John Henry Green and Irene Cecilia
1: well, Green. I like that name, Irene Cecilia Green. It's a pretty name.
0: I know, isn't it beautiful? And tragically, just three days after his birth, Green's mother died. Oh, that's awful. In the hospital, he was referred to only as Baby Green until his mother was buried. After this, he was named after his grandfather. Daniel John Green. So almost immediately lost his mother. Very sad.
1: That's very sad. Was it at, due to the childbirth or was it something else? Do you know? I, you know, I don't know.
0: Yeah, they didn't say. It
1: might not have been well documented in 1933.
0: Yeah, I don't know if it was. Danny's father, John Henry Green, was known to drink heavily. And he eventually lost his job as a salesman for Fuller Brush which is a company that sold branded items for home and personal care. After losing his job, Danny's father sent him to temporarily move in with his grandfather, who had also recently been widowed. Eventually, unable to provide for Danny, his father placed him in Parmadale, a Roman Catholic orphanage in Parma, Ohio, three miles outside Cleveland. We don't have a date on when Danny was placed here, but we know it was prior to 1939.
1: He was very young. He would have been six at that point, right? Yes. As in
0: 1939, Danny's father began dating a nurse. They married and started their own family and once established, sent for Danny to come live with them. At six years old, when he was taken in, he was said to resent his stepmother and ran away from home on several occasions. What's even sadder, but... Questioned and unsighted, Green's father died soon after, and apparently the newspaper obituary listed his children from his second marriage, but did not mention
1: Danny. Oh, no, that's hard. you yeah, probably felt a lot of abandonment. Right. Being sent to an orphanage, and then losing your dad and not even getting that recognition that he was your father. Right.
0: Danny then left the home to live with his paternal grandfather. Danny lived with him and an aunt for the rest of his childhood in the Collinwood neighborhood of Cleveland. Here is the first part of the family lore and how the scene is further set. My father, my grandparents, uncles, and aunt all also lived and grew up in the Collinwood neighborhood of Cleveland during this time period. Oh boy. Danny's grandfather worked knights, and Danny was said to take advantage of it roaming the streets of the city. In the documentary, Danny Green, The Rise and Fall of the Irishman, a childhood friend, Sister Barbara Epic, said that Danny was always in the hall at school and never in class. She said because of the hours his grandfather slept and worked, Danny frequently was not even in school. She said when he was, he was always dirty and that he grew up by himself. She said he never had rules and thus made his own.
1: And I also have to say, the name Sister Barbara Epic is a phenomenal name.
0: <laughs> she comes back too.
1: Oh, good, because I like her just based on her name.
0: Yes, she's yeah, she's a childhood friend as well.
1: Oh
2: wow,
0: the school where Danny and Sister Barbara met was St. Jerome Catholic School. St. Jerome is still an active church and Catholic school operating in Cleveland today. Another notable attendee of St. Jerome is my father, who attended the school, though not the same time as Danny. During the crimes in Gang Turf War, my father was around 11 years old. At St. Jerome's, Danny was said to have a great fondness for the nuns and the priests, developed lasting relationships with some of his teachers, and served as an altar boy. Danny's grades weren't the best, and he was known to be a poor student. However, he excelled in all athletics, playing both baseball and basketball for St. Jerome. He was so valuable to the teams that despite his poor grades, the nuns allowed him to play.
1: Oh, wow. It, it sounds like he was trying to de- just develop relationships with adults. He didn't have that at home. Yeah. That these kind of acted as his parents from what just that brief description.
0: They, they took him under his wing, or took him under their wing probably more than they knew.
1: Yeah, I'm sure that relationship grew much further than expected on either side of it.
0: St. Jerome Catholic School goes to 8th grade. After 8th grade, Danny attended St. Ignatius High School, a Catholic Jesuit school in Cleveland. It is also still open and functioning as an all-boys high school. In fact, during my time before I moved to Chicago, I worked for St. Ignatius's Performing Arts Space. I look back on my time with them fondly, and I had a couple of great bosses, though I did inevitably leave them to move to Chicago.
1: Yeah, it's different quitting to move versus just quitting.
0: Exactly. Yeah, I I didn't turn in my keys and run. I was moving to Chicago. It was...
1: A good environment. Yeah, I had the same relationship with my boss when I quit my job in Wisconsin. And actually, I took you in that store uh, when Mm -hmm. you came to visit Mm -hmm. my hometown, because I still have such a good relationship with them. Well,
0: Danny Green would probably look at his time at St. Ignatius differently than I did. He frequently fought with the Italian-American students, foreshadowing his crimes and eventual murder. What's sad for me is that these were children of more recent immigrants, just like the Irish,
2: who were struggling for a place. And I wish that there was the
0: opportunity for kinship to be formed between them and friendship to be fostered from that. Unfortunately, we don't see that
1: here what's crazy is you you don't even know what case i'm researching next Mm -hmm. i can basically say the same exact thing for the case that i'm researching Mm -hmm. and i think that unfortunately that that's a trend that everyone in these situations you want to stick amongst people who are like you that can understand you and i think a lot of the time there's a lot of strife between two opposing groups that are literally trying to do the same thing
0: Mm -hmm. and we're gonna see a lot of that here here is where we see danny's dislike of italians for the first time but not the last danny believed this goes to sort of what you were saying sam Danny believed the Italians thought they were better than everyone and were taking over everything and that Cleveland needed to be protected from them. He was expelled from St. Ignatius, which does not surprise me, given that the school is very focused on its mission to bring forth new leaders and young men and has a high standard for both behavior and academics, at least in my experience there.
1: So I I know that you said that this is a a religious school. Mm -hmm. Is it a public school as well, where it's just like, if you live in that area, you go there? No.
0: St. Ignatius is a private private Catholic school. Yes. But Danny, once he was expelled from St. Ignatius, and Danny transferred from St. Ignatius to Collinwood High School, a public school in Cleveland, where he, again, excelled at athletics. In 1951, Green was expelled from Collinwood High School. In this case, oh no. due, Yes, he's three for three. Well, St. Jerome's, he did all right. In this case, he claimed it was due to excessive tardiness, which he claimed was caused by the bullying of fellow students. Though so that is unsighted and unconfirmed.
1: And that's kind of a hard time period when you go back and look at those sorts of records. Because I think Mm. bullying and things like that were kind of brushed off a lot within that time period.
0: Oh, absolutely. After being expelled for the second time, Danny enlisted in the United States Marine Corps. He was soon noticed for his abilities as a boxer and a marksman.
1: Oh, those are... Be scary,
0: correct, but also
1: take a lot of talent to, to be in a, to either one,
0: exactly. And meaning you're skilled in both hand to hand combat and long range weaponry.
1: Yeah,
0: he was stationed for a time at the Marine Corps base Camp Lejeune in Jacksonville, North Carolina. Green was transferred between bases many times, possibly for behavioral issues but the reasons for the transfers are undocumented. And it, it may not have been issues, because in 1953, Green was promoted to the rank of corporal, where he taught new junior Marines how to be artillerymen.
1: Okay, so they clearly did value him. Correct.
0: And from all
1: accounts that
0: I've been able to find, he was honorably discharged later that year.
1: Oh, that was kind of quick to get a discharge.
0: The discharge is unsighted. And I was unable to get more information on it, even after a deep dive on the military wikis. In this case, since it's documented in many places that Green's military career was successful, I would hope that it's accurate that he was honorably discharged. However, we should all remember that we don't know.
1: Yeah, I feel like, and maybe this is just me assuming too much, but I feel like you would hear more likely if he was dishonorably discharged than if he were to be honorably discharged.
0: Agreed. I would think there would be much more record of a dishonorable discharge. Exactly. In 1955, while working on the Collinwood Railroad, Green met his future wife, Nancy. They were quickly married, and Danny left the railroad to work on the docks as a Steve Door, an independent dock worker.
1: Okay, so I don't know what a Steve Door is.
0: Yes, that's an independent dock worker. Okay. In the documentary, Nancy recollects that Danny was a pretty normal guy, and before she knew it, they were married. Danny's daughter also appears and says growing up with her dad was great. They didn't know what he did, only that he was pretty strict around the house. But more than anything, his daughter remembers him as being a great dad. Good.
1: You hear a lot in these sorts of stories And I don't know what happens to him. You haven't told me any of that. Mm -hmm. But you just hear when somebody says strict house, that that doesn't necessarily coincide all the time in these true crime stories to also be a great dad. It's good to hear that on occasion.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And this is I mean, this is his own daughter speaking and she said she had a great dad and that's all i can hope for for her but danny green was much more than that we pick up with danny some seven to ten years later with green working steadily as a longshoreman at the cleveland docks years before the work was unionized by the international longshoremen's association by all first person accounts Danny was said to read a lot about everything during these years, though it was said he was intently focused on Ireland and its turbulent history, including Celtic warriors. It was said during all this reading, it solidified for Green that he was a Celtic warrior, and in his readings may have found some inspiration for his criminal ambitions. In 1961, the ILA removed the president of the local union. Green was chosen to serve as the interim president and won the next election to become president of the local union.
1: Oh, wow. Yeah, it sounds like he had been there for a long time. And again, he was valued.
0: And he's now president in the the ILA, again, the International Longshoremen's Association is what Danny Green is president of currently.
1: Yeah, it's a big difference between a promotion and an election as well. Like, obviously, both are, are big deals and deserve to be rewarded, But having people vote on you, it's a big deal to to then get that position after that.
0: Yeah, your peers. Upon his election, Green had the union office painted green to reflect his heritage. Eyewitness testimony from authorities said everything in the office was green as well. The carpets, the drapes,
1: the desks.
0: Danny was known to always be wearing green and using a pen with green ink.
1: I'm okay with that because my favorite color is green.
0: (laughs) So I would like that. In addition to all the painting, in Danny's tenure at office, he raised union dues 25% and pushed workers to perform volunteer hours to assist in providing a building fund. Those workers who refused Green's request often found themselves losing work. He also fired more than 50 members, denouncing them as winos and bums to other
2: workers. Oh. Oh.
0: Yeah. An unidentified dock worker, recalled of Green, he ran on the waterfront. He imagined himself a tough dock boss, but he was 30 years too late. He used workers to beat up union members who did not come into line, but was never seen fighting himself. He was a spellbinding speaker and a good organizer. Danny would need those skills and all his Irish charm for the future he was making for himself.
1: Okay, so it unfortunately sounds like he was abusing his power. One might say.
0: One might say. Growing up, I heard stories every so often about Mr. Kovacic, my dad's football coach. In my research of this story and my first person call with my father, I was surprised to find out he was actually, at this time, Sergeant Edward Kovacic, of the Cleveland Police Intelligence Unit and Bomb Squad member. Oh, wow. He would go on with a lot of career in law enforcement, eventually becoming police chief. All the while, he coached young men at St. Jerome's how to play football. So he's just really good people. Like, he's committed to the city, and he's helping
1: out the local youth
0: just real good guy if you guys watch the documentary i can just feel feel it i'm like he's he's i just
1: remember you texting me i don't know a week ago saying i just got big news about my dad's football coach and you didn't tell me anything else i didn't know it would be this yes sergeant he was a sergeant
0: and in the intelligence unit and a bomb squad member which folks remember that that's gonna be important. In the documentary, Kvasek recalled that Northeastern Ohio was being terrorized by the longshoremen's beatings and assaults. They were definitely happening, but no one would prosecute. He went to Danny Green to see if he could find the root of the problem and help. When Sergeant Kvasek brought up the assaults, Green went on a diatribe against Italian-Americans using, quote, every ethnic slur I could imagine.
1: That, that's, for us, that's that's harsh because I'm glad there was a quote like that in there, but I know, especially with the case I'm researching right now, it's hard for us to quote those things because mm-hmm. we don't believe in using that language, and even if it's just in a quote atmosphere, right? It, it's hard to do the that sort of research and then try to portray it. There were a couple.
0: Everyone will see as we move forward. We're going to see a lot of people who have a lot of nicknames, and some of those. People are listed by just their regular names because their nicknames were super
1: offensive. Yeah, and please know if we ever use any sort of language like that, the only time we will ever choose to is if it's in direct quotes to display something within our episodes. And that makes a big point within our episodes. I just think that that's important for us to say because it's something that's very, very important to us to respect everyone absolutely in every way that we can
0: absolutely i only want to use words to help not not to harm and in this case danny's hatred of italians had been percolating since childhood and would lead him down the dangerous path of pursuing those italians la cosa nostra the italian mafia was said to be centralized on murray hill and green had nothing but distaste for this
2: Though
1: Green was about to
0: have his first comeuppance,
1: what I find interesting is—is is, isn't Murray an Italian name? Yes, it is. And <laughs> like so, so the Italians are on Murray Hill. Is that part of an like part of it? It's like
0: it, I think it's like a neighborhood, like Chica- Chicago style wise. I think Murray Hill is a neighborhood. My dad's probably screaming out right now that it's just a road.
1: I just find it interesting that that's. It just happens to be an area that the Italian mafia chose to be in, which happens Mm -hmm. to be a place that is named after something Irish. Yeah. Maybe I'm reading into it, but I just noticed that.
0: Sam Marshall, an investigative reporter, collected affidavits that supported charges of extortion. And Green was exiled from the union and convicted of embezzlement. Sam Marshall published a nine-part investigative series in the Cleveland Plain Dealer, which is still the most circulated newspaper in Cleveland. And he did this in 1964. So the newspaper is big. It brought a lot of unwanted attention to Danny from the U.S. attorney, the IRS, the Labor Department and Cuyahoga County prosecutor. Uh The embezzlement conviction was later overturned on appeal. Rather than face a second trial, Green pleaded guilty to the lesser charge of falsifying union records and was fined $10,000. He received a suspended sentence. He received no prison time, and it is said that Green allegedly also never paid that fine.
1: Sounds like he got off pretty easy with that
0: exactly it does it does and especially considering as soon as this happens danny returns to his old rackets which were moving him ever closer to the mafia when he met and befriended teamsters boss louis triscaro who introduced green to jimmy hoffa
1: oh that's the name yep and
0: after the friendly meeting hoffa reportedly said to triscaro quote Stay away from that guy. There's something wrong with him. Oh, <laughs> did they
1: ever find Hoffa? Not, not yet. But y'all, if if this this is some deep stuff.
0: <laughs> if if you've heard something I haven't about Jimmy Hoffa, let me know. But they has, still have not found him, and he said there was something wrong with Danny Green.
1: Yeah, that I think that's a pretty pretty big deal for for Jimmy Hoffa to be saying something like that, right? Tony Hughes. An Italian
0: teamster and bodyguard for Italian mafia so Jackie Presser seemed to agree. He said, quote, Danny wanted to be the boss of everything, but there were bigger and better people around to be in charge, and Green had no respect for anyone. He'd kill the guys that worked for him. He was really a no good guy. Human life didn't mean much to him. Oh wow. Jackie Presser, Tony's boss, wanted nothing to do with the longshoremen or Danny and made that clear. Upon Danny presenting himself to talk, Hughes said, quote, Danny, we don't want you here. Just get out. Green replied, I never did nothing against you. Hughes returned, Well, I don't like you, and I don't like your people. Just get out. Green left, but added, Remember, you're throwing me out. Hughes vowed he would. Sounds like a threat. Don't it, though? Little,
1: little say, just, just that, that less, last comment is, Remember what you're doing to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and for the record, where I have these quotes,
0: they're directly pulled from the documentary, which we'll link in the sources.
1: Real people said all this stuff. Yeah, I think I need to check that out. You, you were texting me like the whole way through the documentary, mm-hmm. but I wanted to know nothing before you presented this case to me. So I haven't watched it, <laughs> but now I really want to watch it.
0: Now is probably a really good time to give a trigger warning for The Rise and Fall of Danny Green, the documentary, was clearly shot in maybe, like, the 80s or something. But they're using news reports from this time, around the 70s. And I couldn't believe what graphic images were on the news in the 70s and were in this
1: documentary. Yeah, we had a a long conversation about seeing stuff that we prefer we, we didn't see. Yep. Um, there's a case that you'll hear about from me in the future where I was just trying to pull photos for our socials and I saw some things that I really I didn't want to see. And it was the same exact time you were watching this documentary that I texted mm-hmm. you that. Yeah. And and we were both pretty shocked.
0: Yeah. So watch out there folks, but it is a good documentary. The Just when they cut to the news footage, maybe look away and listen in.
1: Or just or be warned ahead of time. If If you can stomach it, go ahead.
0: Use your discretion. Around the time of his first trial and subsequent plea bargain, in 1964, Marty McCann of the Organized Crime Division of the FBI recruited Green as an informant. Oh, interesting. Right. Green passed along information to the FBI and became a top echelon confidential informant. But he was said to pass along only that which suited his personal needs, and he would not hurt those close to him.
1: Which, based on everything you're saying, does not surprise me by any means.
0: Right, exactly. He's looking to, when it serves him, Yeah. He'll, he'll inform. Some speculate that Green may have been an informant through some reason in his plea bargain. That could have been it. Either way, he becomes an informant, and the FBI ran into a problem with Green being an informant. His information was so valuable But his status was an albatross around their necks. The FBI was forced to look the other way on a lot of crimes that Danny committed, even murders.
1: And he probably relied on that.
0: Exactly. So he provided them with what they deemed good information, but they were also finding out, in addition to his informant duties, Green was also, quote, a really bad and dangerous guy. Green's code name with the FBI was Mr. Patrick, another reflection of his Irish pride and the name of his beloved confirmation saint. Danny was now removed as president, but skilled in moving through the streets of the city. He was said to have both lower echelon friends in the street and high-ranking government officials in the street.
1: Which is, I'm sure, exactly where he wanted to be.
0: Because next, Green was hired by Cleveland Mafia underboss Frank, Little Frank,
1: Brancado,
0: who had noted Green's abilities to work on organizing the Trash Haulers Union.
1: That could be beneficial to him.
0: Exactly. So no- Brancado noticed how he organized the Longshoremen and thought he could do that with the Trash Haulers Union. He was working with the Cleveland Solid Waste Trade Guild to, quote, keep the peace. During the 1960s, Brancato used Green and other Irish American gangsters to act as errand boys and muscle men to enforce the mafia's influence over the garbage hauling contracts and other rackets. Until his death in 1973, Brancato reportedly regretted having brought Danny into the mob due to the damage Green did.
1: Which. Again, doesn't really surprise me. From I feel like we're we're building up to something really big. We are, and I feel like everyone involved in his rise to whatever that is is going to regret it.
0: Yes, and to make a mafia a mafia man regret something until his dying day, you sure did something. Yeah, sure did something. Impressed with his abilities, mobster Alex Shondor Burns, a Jewish Mafia associate, hired him as an enforcer for his various numbers operations. In the movie, he's played by the legendary Christopher Walken. Burns' job was to run the numbers and make sure that the five families of the Mafia weren't overpaying or underpaying. He was also settling disputes between the families. He would take a cut of the money up to Murray Hill, where he would pay off organized crime operators who worked for him. Burns was a racketeer associated with the mafia, but he was not able to become an actual, quote, mafia member or, quote, made man because he was Jewish and not Italian. But he was known to have had a career with them and was said to be on his way to retirement.
1: So he clearly had respect from, sounds like, all parties.
2: It's true. So right now we're all working
0: towards the same ends. In May 1968, on orders from Burns, Green was supposed to attack a black numbers man who was holding out on protection money that was due. Unfamiliar with the military-type detonator on the car bomb, Green barely made it out of the car before the bomb exploded. Green survived after being thrown nearly 20 feet, though the hearing in his right ear was damaged for life. Allegedly, he told the police a story about what had occurred, and thereafter would only trust professionals to handle bombs. Green's daughter recollected that another time Green had crawled up from a blown up vehicle on the highway behind their house.
2: So close to home.
0: Yes. He drug himself from the car to the home. Indoors, she said he was singed head to foot with no eyelashes or eyebrows. Nancy, Danny's ex-wife, said she knew, quote, after he survived that first one, we knew there would be many, many more.
1: Oh, that, that has to be a sad realization. But also, you said his daughters didn't know what he was doing. They had to have some idea, a little bit at least. They might not know at, le- at all the extent. But if you're crawling home with no eyelashes and eyebrows, right. Kind of it a wasn't. sign. But I can also understand being in a denial. If, if he was still a good father, I, c- I could understand that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. If it's your dad, you know,
1: it's just like. Yeah. Especially if you, you feel like your parents are good parents. You, right. you put them on a pedestal.
0: Absolutely. And you want to keep them there. And so it's, it's easy to look the other way on some things. Also, we don't know how... She didn't say how old she was when
1: this That's happened. true. It, it, you could be completely remembering it different, but then in retrospect of learning everything...
0: Right. ...you understand. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. She could have just been too young to get, like, oh. That is from a car
1: bomb. Right.
0: Green was still on the assignment of Frank Brancato to work with the Cleveland Solid Waste Trade Guild when a problem occurred. Big Mike Fredo broke away from the union and formed a more legitimate group called the Cuyahoga County Refuse Haulers Association. A legitimate businessman, he allegedly protested Green's bringing the mob involvement and strong-arm tactics to the guild. Shortly thereafter, the Cleveland Solid Waste Trade Guild fell apart.
2: Uh Uh-oh. That doesn't put him in a good light. Uh Uh-oh is correct.
0: In September of 1970, in retaliation, Green instructed Art Snepperger to place a bomb on Fredo's car but Snepperger had second thoughts and told Fredo.
1: Oh, that's something you want to do if you're the one placing the bomb. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: Snepperger was a police informant and told Sergeant Kavasek of the Cleveland Police Intelligence Unit about Danny's plans and his status as an FBI informant. Uh Uh-oh. As Snepperger placed the bomb on Fredo's car, it detonated before he could get away killing him and sparing Fredo, who was across the street. Oh, no. Some investigators believe the premature explosion was caused by a radio signal, possibly from a shortwave radio or passing police car. Others thought Burns and Green purposefully killed Sneperger after learning he was an informant.
1: I, I can understand both.
0: Sergeant Kvasik was told by an underworld source that Green had pushed the detonator, killing Snepperger instantly. The case was never officially
2: solved.
1: If he's planting car bombs himself, he definitely has the, like, mental ability
2: to kill one of his own men. Easily. I would assume.
1: Oh, yes. Yes. Like, we can't imagine that as who we are, but, like, if exactly. you're in that position, you're but just we've doing already it.
0: and we've already heard from he, Mr. Hughes in the documentary that he had no respect for human life.
1: Yeah, and that he he would off his own crew members and, and all of that.
0: Yeah, exactly. Sergeant and eventual chief of police and bomb squad member Edward Kvasek, said, "Bombs have a language." If somebody's doing something and you want them to stop, if it's not too bad, you might lay a stick of dynamite on the hood of their car. That means stop what you're doing. If you're really mad at them, you blow their car up. But if you put a command bomb on, you want to kill them. End quote. A command bomb was one that detonated with a button after the car's key was turned in the ignition.
1: Okay, so it's like Okay, y- you have no warning. Here you go. We're going to kill you with a command bomb. Or right. First, here's your first warning. A stick of dynamite on the hood. hmm Second warning. Blow up your car. But w- without you in it. And then third, here we go, command bomb. Right. Interesting.
0: In his spare time, when not committing dangerous crimes for the city's underworld, Danny Green was in the hobby of working out at Cleveland's White Clay Beach. My father shared that it was common to see Danny walking his Dobermans around the Collinwood neighborhood as well. He was doing just that on November 26, 1971, when Big Mike Fredo was shot and killed. Uh Uh-oh. Green told police Fredo had fired three shots at him while he was jogging and exercising the dogs. Green returned two shots from about 25 feet away, one of which was a lucky shot that struck Fredo in the head, killing him.
1: I'm sure a uh, quote-unquote lucky shot.
0: I wondered the same thing. I wondered if it was lucky, considering Green was a Marine Corps-trained marksman.
1: Exactly.
0: However, Green himself said it was lucky. Quote, but if people want to think I'm a crack shot, let them.
2: 25 feet?
1: Like, c- come on. I-, I haven't shot a gun, but I know 25 feet's not that far away. And he was a military-trained
0: marksman. He trained new Marines how to use artillery. Yeah,
1: I don't buy it. <laughs> Don't buy it.
0: Yeah. Well, it certainly was not a lucky shot for Mr. Fredo, but well, yeah. it did. Green Green did fire back and hit him. Evidence corroborated Green's story, and he was released. CPD later learned Fredo was armed and had an opportunity to kill Green several weeks prior to the White Clay Beach shooting. During their partnership, Green and Fredo had become so close that they had named sons after each other. Wow. So so this guy is not above murdering someone he'd named a child after.
2: Wow. That with a
0: with a gun, with a gunshot. He's not worried about that at all.
1: That that's a lot. Like yeah. That you have to have a pretty great relationship to be willing to name your child after them.
0: Yeah. Not long afterward, Green again came under fire while keeping to his workout routine on White Clay Beach. A sniper, concealed several hundred feet away, fired several shots at Green from a rifle. Instead of ducking to the ground, Green pulled out his revolver and started shooting while running toward his would be assassin. Of course. The sniper fled and was never positively identified. Investigators learned that this attempt was part of a murder contract left by Burns. We'll get to that in a minute. At this time, in 1974, Green and his wife split. And Green moved her and his three children to an apartment in the suburbs of Cleveland, safe from the danger.
1: Probably a smart decision.
0: Yeah. She said that he was a Jekyll and Hyde type situation, saying, quote, he could be very nice or very violent, and it depended on which trigger you pulled each day. Nancy didn't like the children being so close to the crimes, and this was the last straw for her. So after he moved them to the suburbs, Danny set up shop again in his home neighborhood, Collingwood. He moved into a two-story house that was across the street from a grocery store where a young man worked as a bad boy. The bad boy would grow up to be my father. Wow. Journalist Ned Whelan wrote of Green, quote, Imagining himself as a feudal baron, he supported a number of destitute Collinwood families, paid tuition to Catholic schools for various children, and like the gangsters of the 20s, actually had 50-pound turkeys delivered to needy households on Thanksgiving. He was known to do the same at Christmas.
1: So even though he's doing all these truly terrible things, killing multiple people, Mm -hmm. he is still trying to be a philanthropist.
0: Yes, he's still very serious about I'm sure what he considers his territory, but is a neighborhood mm-hmm. of commu-
1: and a community. But he seemed very serious about both those things. Well, and I'm sure there's also an importance in keeping his image up and, and keeping right. the people who don't know the details happy. Right.
0: Sergeant Edward Kvasek confirms in the documentary that when a rowdy group of Hell's Angels moved into Collinwood, Green visited their headquarters he knocked on the door smoking a cigar with three sticks of dynamite in his hand. When the Hells Angel that answered the door opened it, he lit the fuse and allegedly said that if anything happens, quote, I'll blow you up, I'll blow this building up, and I'll blow up any Hells Angel I can find. Cool. The fuse was burning down, and when the man looked at it urgently, Green pulled the fuse and blast cap off the dynamite, rendering it ineffective. When he threw the fuse to the side and the blast cap snapped. Green allegedly told the man, next time it'll be up your butt.
1: <laughs> oh, oh boy. Which, like, that's not something to laugh at, but it's kind of no, funny. I,
0: it's not funny, but it's really funny. It's not funny if you're a Hells Angel and Danny Green's on your porch, but it's really funny.
1: Oh, yeah, if someone came to my porch with some dynamite, no matter what they said, I'd be terrified. Right that's kind of funny
0: (laughs) right and also clarity you know next
1: time up your butt (laughs) yeah yeah he's making it clear after
0: renting his apartment in collinwood he began to garner a reputation as a protector and a benefactor so just like what you said maintaining that sort of air and reputation sergeant kvasik shared that green died essentially penniless having given all his ill-gotten gains away to others In the streets of Collinwood, around where Danny lived, there was said never to be trouble by his childhood friend because people knew Danny lived there. My dad recalled that it was still safe to run around the streets of Cleveland with his friends and ride bikes. No special precautions had to be taken. Life pretty much carried on as my dad said, these guys were out to get each other, not the community. Green was highly respected and liked in his neighborhood due to keeping it safe. Outside of that, he was a pain to the authorities, but the community liked him, some even dubbing him the Robin Hood of Collinwood.
1: I know you and I were talking about it very, very briefly about this, and I I kind of compare it to a lot of the gang violence that we see in Chicago. Like, it's all over the place. It very much exists. Yes. I think you and I both have had experiences where there's been shootings directly outside our apartment. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But if you're not involved in it and you, you don't show an affiliation with any gang, yeah, you're fine. You can live your yeah. life and you're not a target. You're not somebody that, that needs to be terrified every second when you go outside, even though you know it is around you.
0: Yeah, and, and my dad said there wasn't fear in the streets. You know, like, people weren't wandering around looking at every car they saw. You know, these guys were really
1: targeted. And it, it, it's a shame that the, the, the violence exists, and I, I wish it mm-hmm. didn't.
0: Right, but it's very much a part of living in a city. Exactly. We're And we're about to see a lot happen very quickly. By this time... Green and Shondor Burns' relationship was souring. Danny had asked Burns for a loan of seventy-five thousand dollars to set up a cheat spot, which is a speakeasy and gambling house.
1: And this is still the '70s, right? Correct. The seventy-five thousand dollars is a lot of money in the '70s. A lot, folks. A lot. And you're about
0: to hear where that seventy-five thousand dollars came from. Burns arranged the amount, partially through the Gambino crime family in New York.
1: Oh no. Right. (laughs) That's not good.
0: We are not playing with just anyone's money here. In this game, Burns insisted that his own courier be used in the transfer of the money from New York to Green, but Green was said to not have been happy about involving this third party.
1: I wouldn't be happy either.
0: Green would be wise not to trust him as the money was lost in the hands of Shondor Burns' courier, Billy Cox. Oh, no. Billy Cox used it to purchase cocaine. Oh, that's worse. Oh, no. Mm Mm-hmm. The police raided Cox's house, arrested him, seized the narcotics, and what was left of the $75,000 Burns and the Gambinos had arranged to go to Green. So that money is unaccounted for, now.
1: Yeah, and there's, there's no one to return it.
0: The Gambino family wanted their money, and Burns pressed Green. However, Green refused to return the money, reminding Burns that he could not return something he had never received, and that Burns was responsible, as the money was lost in the hands of Burns' courier, who he had not wanted involved in the scheme anyway.
1: Which is fair on Green's part. That that's a fair argument. I I would agree. I would agree. Say so no one's happy, but I I understand why Green is saying this. No one's happy, and
0: what made Shondor Burns even more unhappy was that he was forced to pay the money out of his own pocket
1: to the Gambino. Yeah, that sucked for him. Because again, it wasn't Burns's fault. Like it was his courier. Yeah. But if his courier is basically on his payroll, that's the price of doing business.
0: And if you're the guy who went to the Gambino crime family, you're the guy that they know has their money. Yeah, you're you're the responsible one. Right. They want their money. To settle this dispute, Burns directed an associate to hire a hitman for Green and give him $25,000 in cash for the job. Noting that it should be carried out even in the event of any harm befalling him. So a contract that was offered in perpetuity.
1: Like what what's crazy? Like I obviously I'm never gonna fully understand this whole situation because this is not something that, that is normal in my life. But this literally put Burns out a hundred thousand dollars in the 70s
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yes. Yes, you're. Is that worth it? Like, I, I, I I don't know. I don't have an answer, but that's a lot of money.
0: It's a lot of money. Uh, but the activity does give the 2011 film its name, and Christopher Walken a mafioso moment where he hands an envelope of cash over and says, "Quote, give this to the man who kills the Irishman." Once again, that's from the movie,
1: (laughs) and I could totally picture Christopher Walken
0: saying that line too. I should have done the impression, but I'm not going to go back and do it. And also, he didn't really have a walk-in accent when he said it. He said it mostly like that. The movie goes on to show a montage of the bombings that happened in Cleveland between 1970 and 1977. In just 1976, 36 bombs went off and earned Cleveland the nickname Bomb City, USA. Wow. The ATF tripled its staffing in Northeastern Ohio in order to handle the bomb investigations, with Sergeant Kavasek as a member of the team. All of that is true. However, I do want to call the movie out on one specific inaccuracy. The movie shows associates of Green throwing a bomb into a police car. This is incorrect. Green and his associates were not killing cops. Sergeant Kvasik had far too close an eye on Green and his team, and according to Kvasik, while he had a close working relationship with Green as an informant that bordered on friendly, he, quote, absolutely wanted to put Green in a penitentiary. If they had killed a police officer, Sergeant Kvasik would have nailed him. Remember, Kvasik was a bomb squad member as well.
1: Yeah, that probably would Green probably even agree that that put, would put him too much at risk.
0: Exactly, that would put just—I mean—you're already developing a target on your back from the mafia, and that would then put a massive target on you with the full force of Cleveland Police Department.
2: No, mm-hmm.
0: no, not worth it. That was movie magic, folks.
1: Probably made for a good story in the in the plot.
0: Yeah. Nevertheless, several minor underworld funkies, burglars by trade, took Burns' contract, but their numerous assassination attempts on Green failed. Green's ex-wife Nancy remembers that he was once stabbed and it missed his heart by an inch. Wow. Yeah. Green was quickly becoming the cat with nine lives, as many said. Many also attributed it to the luck of the Irish. During one of these botched assassination attempts, Green found an undetonated bomb on his car when he pulled into a Collinwood service station to get gas.
1: I'm sure he knew, like, all the places to look where they would plant a bomb and checking everything of his before getting in.
0: Oh, absolutely. Because, I mean, you know, he spends most of the evenings placing these himself on other people's cars. So... I imagine he would check everywhere. So when he gets to the service station, he finds that the bomb was wired improperly and failed to detonate. Green disassembled the bomb himself, removed the dynamite, and brought the rest of the package to a policeman, one with whom he would forge a tenuous working relationship
1: that I just mentioned, Sergeant Edward Kvasik. So he actually got in his car and drove around and then discovered the bomb? Yes, yes. Oh, oh, wow. Uh, see, I was I was understanding it to be like he just checked before he got in his car every single time. But wow, no. he, he got he did get lucky.
0: No, he he discovered it at a service station getting gas.
1: Oh, wow. It was,
0: and it was undetonated. Yeah, it was wired
1: improperly. Yeah, I get the nickname. The
0: cop who he brings it to is, of course, Sergeant Edward Kavasek. Kvasek offered Green police protection, but Green refused it. After examining the contents given to him, Kvasek made an astute observation, asking, quote, Where is the dynamite, Danny? Green said to Kvasek, quote, Those are going back to the son of a bitch that sent them to me. Oh. Kvasek remarked to Danny that he'd have to testify to these remarks if any case went to court, to which Danny cracked, Nobody will believe you anyhow it Sounds like another threat. Quote, yes, that is a quote. Nobody will believe you anyhow. After tiring of working for La Cosa Nostra and their men always taking cuts and due to his racism toward Italians, Green formed his own crew of young Irish-American gangsters called the Celtic Club. His main enforcers were Keith, the Enforcer, Ritson, Kevin McTaggart, Brian O'Donnell, Danny Green Jr., Billy McDuffie, Elmer Britton, Ernest Ted Waite, Art Snep, Snepurger, who we already met and found out what I so said. We, we've
1: heard his name before.
0: We've met Art, and lastly Jimmy Icepick Sterling.
1: Oh, I, I have a feeling I know why he has that nickname.
0: I don't like that nickname at all. That was one of the names that I was like, oh, I don't like that.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a pretty uh, obvious understanding of why he has that.
0: Yeah, that's a bad one. They set up gambling dens across the city. Danny and the Celtic Club allied with John Nardi, a Cleveland crime family labor racketeer who wanted to overthrow the leadership in the Cleveland Mafia.
1: Sounds like a good person to partner with.
0: Right. Yes, exactly. So this is now a mafia man who is flipping sides and working with Danny Green. March 29th, 1975. It is Holy Saturday, the eve of Easter, when Danny Green decided to retaliate against Shondor Burns, suspecting correctly that he had ordered the hit on him. Burns was blown up by a bomb on his car containing C4 a potent military explosive near St. Malachi's church. The bomb detonated so close to the church where the services were being held that Sergeant Kvasik recounted that, quote, body parts came down outside the church. Oh, wow. Danny's high school friend, Sister Barbara Epic, was inside the church and said when the bomb went off inside, it was like a red tornado.
1: Oh, what an image that is
0: prompted by the priest to go check what happened she said quote it looked like a war zone it was sparks and fire and everybody screaming due to the length of the holy saturday services it had overlapped with the service and the parishioners of saint malachi were held inside the church as cops came to collect shondor burns remains wow which i think we can all imagine took
1: sometimes. yeah it's it's hard in those sorts of situations um i know somebody who's a coroner who i think i've mentioned a couple times before and their first site they ever went on was a plane craft um <sighs> and i can only imagine how incredibly difficult that has to be for you when it's your profession but to everyone who has to be inside of that church
2: mm-hmm
0: Mm-hmm. And yeah, I I can only imagine that it, it took a lot of time, given that C four was used in the explosive. That is not small potatoes, not at all. But we're about to hear something that is much bigger than small potatoes. Another explosion rocked Collinwood on May twelfth, nineteen seventy five. Only this one was much closer to home. In fact, home, literally Green's building at one. 5805 Waterloo Road in Collinwood was rigged with two bombs, one in the front and one behind. The front bomb on the residence detonated the entire first floor of Green's home, but he sustained only minor injuries. As the second floor fell down, Green and a living girlfriend were shielded from debris by a refrigerator that had lodged against a wall, and they were able to take cover under it. Wow. The second, more powerful bomb failed to detonate, for which Green credited the intercession of St. Jude, whose medal he always wore around his neck.
1: It really does sound like he has nine lives.
0: Sergeant Kvasek had a more specific explanation of what happened. The explosion of the first bomb blew the bomb planted at the back of the house off of the structure, causing it not to detonate.
1: That makes sense.
0: It was also found to have faulty gas caps. In the documentary, the shoddy construction of the bomb gives Sergeant Kavasik a chuckle. But then he turns to the seriousness of the situation, relating that this second bomb was rigged to so much gasoline that had it detonated, it would not just have blown up Green's home. It likely would have taken out several houses on the block. Oh, wow. My dad remembers that night that everyone in the neighborhood heard the blast, and he was about a half mile away from it at his childhood home. He also told me that he had ridden over to see the rubble of the house.
1: If you've never heard an explosion, it's loud and kelly i'm not sure if you've ever heard of of a decent explosion but it's intense
0: i don't yeah i don't know that i've i've been near one
1: i remember as a kid there was a garage that blew up near our house and it was it was purely accidental from my understanding it was somebody who was working in the garage and i had gas cans in the garage full of gas i think oh, and no. and thump- something happened and. I remember hearing that as a little kid and it was about a half a block away and it, it was it was it only affected that one house. And so I can only imagine with what Sargent is saying, if it, it could have affected that many houses, how big that would have had to have been.
0: Exactly. Kvasek specifically stated that it, it could have affected the entire block.
1: That's a lot. That's a lot of gasoline to be putting in there.
0: Mm -hmm. Gotta really want someone dead.
1: Unfortunately, you're not caring who else died in in the path of that destruction.
0: Luckily, in this case, no one.
1: Yes, very luckily.
0: In this case. In this case.
1: Even Danny Green, luckily.
0: Yes. After the bombing on Waterloo Road failed to kill him, Green played up the stories of the Mafia's failed assassination attempts to his benefit.
1: Oh, I'm sure he did.
0: His bravado and flamboyant behavior only added to his growing aura of invincibility and power in the urban legends of the Cleveland criminal underworld. Green granted interviews to television stations, and a newspaper photographer posed him proudly in front of a boarded-up window of his destroyed apartment building. <laughs> Green also stated, quote, Let me clear something else up. I didn't run away from the explosion. Someone said they saw me running away. I walked away. Oh, of and course.
2: After making the
0: often-repeated claim that Green had nine lives, Green said, quote, I am an Irish Catholic. I believe the guy upstairs pulls the strings, and you're not going to go until he says so. It just wasn't my time yet. End quote. In a different interview, Green was being interviewed a second time, begrudgingly, as he first told the reporter to speak to a lawyer if he wanted to talk to him. Then the reporter asked, This is about the fourth time someone's tried to kill you. How do you account for the fact that you survive each time? Green chuckles on the news footage and says, You want to hear the Irish version? The guy upstairs pulls the string. There's no other way. The carnage that could have been wreaked here is unbelievable. Green said this referring to the second bomb on his home that failed to detonate. He went on to say, Anyone that would be involved in this type of endeavor or horrible crime should be put in a cage.
1: is is he yeah.
0: involved in these types of crimes? <laughs> I was going to say, ironically, <laughs> a statement. Yeah. An ironic statement to be giving the news. However, in yet another televised interview, Green denied any knowledge of the underworld war. He said, quote, I have no axe to grind, but if these maggots in this so-called mafia want to come after me, I'm over
2: here by the Celtic club. I'm not hard to find. End quote. OK. Send the message. Yep.
0: In fact, Green was so adamant that he had the Waterloo home bulldozed and the rubble removed. On the rebuilt lot, he placed a single trailer, built a stockade fence around the entirety, and flew the Irish flag high above it. Sergeant Kvassik theorized that, quote, he had no family, and Ireland became his
1: family. Yeah, kind of sounds like what I was mentioning before. Where he he supplemented his family with the people that were around him, right, right, which he's is searching. not always a bad thing. Like that can be incredibly beneficial to people, but in it, his case, exactly, he took he's it searching. to a new
0: level. Yeah, he was he was searching. He's searching for some sort of connection, but it's it's certainly unfortunately taken a turn. But true to his word, Green was simply waiting for the mafia to come to him. He was known to sit on the porch of the trailer shirtless, which my dad observed many times from the supermarket across the street. As people he didn't like passed, he was known to cuss them out. Green often came into the supermarket, and my dad recalls after one of his visits, one of his co-workers said, He is so handsome. Green's Irish charm was clearly still working, and it seemed that he felt relatively untouchable.
1: I'd say, just based on everything you're saying, he probably thought that no one could hurt him with all of the failed attempts. Right, he seems to be...
0: He seems to be believing that aura that he has cultivated. That same year, 1975, Green began to push into the vending machine racket. Traditionally controlled by the mafia, as well as muscling into gambling operations. This angered the Cleveland mafia family leadership, especially Thomas Sinito. Green controlled some of the more lucrative laundry contracts that Sinito wanted, and Sinito deemed the excessive fees Green charged for coin operated laundry contracts extortion. Due to this, Sinito and a mob soldier, Joseph. Joey Luce,
1: Icobachi, sorry Italian friends. Icobachi, maybe? Yakabachi. I'm sorry. I think I think the L in the in the beginning you would pronounce.
0: It's not an L, it's an I. Oh,
1: I just assumed that it wasn't capitalized. Acobacci yeah, makes sense based on what I'm saying, but um, I believe I've said this in other episodes. I don't remember Italian even though I knew it, so <laughs> <laughs> I could be wrong I, Yeah, I, Iacobacci. I think you're right I'm sorry if we're wrong I'm guiding sorry. you in the wrong direction if we're wrong S-
0: sorry Italian friends we're doing our best due to this Sunito and a mob soldier Joseph, Joey Luce Iacobacci, murdered one of Green's associates I supposed to send Green a message but this only served to anger him Green allegedly had dynamite wired to the frame of Sunito's car, but Sunito found the bomb, removed it, and destroyed it.
1: That couldn't have made Green happy?
2: No.
0: The vending machine racket was not yet over, either, and it would claim another victim before any resolution. John Conti owned a vending machine company that provided slot machines and various private clubs and parties. He also worked as a root man for another vending machine company. Conti disappeared, and one of the last things he told his wife was that he had a meeting with Green. This is the last time she saw her husband, until his badly beaten body was discovered a few days later at a dump site in Austintown. Police investigators theorized that Conti was beaten to death in Green's trailer and then transported to Austintown. They found some physical evidence, but Green was never charged with Conti's murder.
2: Wow. Luckily, he had mentioned
1: something to his wife, otherwise they might not have
2: known anything.
0: Right. There may not have been any idea at all but now they have a fairly clear idea. In 1976, longtime mob boss John Scalish died, leaving control of Cleveland's lucrative criminal operations, specifically the Teamsters Union locals, to fall to James Licavoli. It is unclear whether Scalish named Licavoli his successor or if in the fallout of his death he rose to power. Other mobsters, including John Nardi, who we've met, if you recall, mm-hmm. challenged Licavoli for leadership. And still others were said to be upset he was left in charge. And remember, John Nardi is allied with Danny Green, despite being a member of the mafia. His goal was to assume control of organized crime in Cleveland.
1: Yeah, he wanted to like become the new leader but not necessarily mafia related right correct he okay he,
0: he basically wanted it to be him and green run in the streets mm-hmm. within weeks with green's assistance nardi had many of licavoli's supporters killed including most seriously licavoli's underboss leo lips mosseri it was said that Green had disrespected and embarrassed Jack White, a Mafia member, and the crew of Italian Mafia men on Marie Hill. He did not fall he in did. line, did his own thing, and was utterly brazen about it. After the underboss lips fought with Nardi, he disappeared, and his body was found in a blood-soaked trunk in Akron, which is about an hour outside of Cleveland. With Green's reputation being built around the area as a dangerous man, it was said Licavoli's enforcers were even intimidated by him, because he had come after them so many times. The Cleveland family's
2: enforcer Eugene the animal Shazulo was seriously injured
0: was seriously injured and sidelined for several months by a car bomb as well. Soon afterward, a bomb was placed in Alfred Alley Calabrese's car, and it killed an innocent man, Frank Puccio.
1: Kind of the first time that you've mentioned an innocent man dying in all of this.
0: Correct. So I would like to take a moment here that this is an innocent man caught in the crossfire, Frank Puccio of Collinwood. He died while moving Calabrese's Lincoln Continental before getting his own car out of their shared driveway.
1: Oh, wow. Pure accident. Yeah, yeah.
0: He just went to move his neighbor's car so he could get
2: his car out, and it detonated him.
1: Awful. Like, all of this is awful. Like, any death is awful in in these sorts of situations. But having something like that, that's very sad. Yeah, yeah.
2: These events
0: led to the war between the Murray Hill Italian Mafia and Green's Celtic Club to come to a head. In the documentary, it was observed, and I agree, that what Danny didn't understand about the mob in Cleveland was the breadth and the power and the reach of the Mafia and what pride the made men had in the organization. Nobody messed with them. Danny didn't realize the murder of Lips Mosseri would bring the full force of the Mafia against him.
1: Uh-oh.
2: When Chandra Burns
0: was killed, it was considered a different matter. He was not part of the organization,
1: remember, because he was Jewish, and he was not Italian. Right.
0: Even but though was... they
1: valued him, he wasn't actually Mafia.
0: Exactly that he was a contact with them. But Moseri was an underboss, a made man, a true mafioso. With Licavoli missing an underboss, he realized he had to step in and have John Nardi and Danny Green killed once and for all. This takes us to May 17, 1977. Green's longtime ally in the Italian mob, John Nardi, was killed by a car bomb planted by Pasquale Cisternino and Ronald Carabia after several attempts on his life. Green gave further interviews in the wake of the murder that, again, went after the mafia in Cleveland. After Nardi's murder, Licavoli arranged a ceasefire with Green, hoping to catch him off guard and have him killed. Shortly after their ceasefire meeting, Green muscled in on a large west side gambling operation originally run by Nardi. Green offered a percentage to Licavoli, who denied it. What Green didn't know was how much he had offended the mob and how close the luck of the Irish was to running out.
1: Yeah, it just seems like, okay, I'm going to take over this thing. Oh, I'm just going to offer you a cut of it. That just seems like an an insulting business deal right there. That's
0: a correct characterization. And I believe probably exactly what Licavoli was thinking. Why would I take a percentage of something that was originally run by my Italian mob from an Irishman who says he's now going to just take it over? Why would I do that?
1: Yeah, it, it, it just Like, there's nothing about that that seems like it would be beneficial to anyone other than Green, and that seems incredibly (laughs) obvious.
2: Mm
0: Mm-hmm. Licavoli had already made moves to murder Green, arranging a deal with a hitman, Ray Ferrito, that in exchange for 25% of the gambling profits from the cities of Warren and Youngstown, he would kill both Nardi and Danny Green, which he accepted. Frido was known to serve as a hitman and a soldier for the Cleveland and Los Angeles crime families. Rick Barello, author of the book To Kill the Irishman, stated that Green, using bombs or bullets, killed at least eight mafia hitmen sent to assassinate him. Wow. <laughs> That's so many.
2: And that also goes to that shot from twenty-five feet away,
1: right. He, he he shot that person point blank,
0: right. And and Perello, Rick Pirello, the author of the book. Obviously, it's nonfiction. It's well researched. Eh? He claims eight, at least eight. At, it says at least eight. Danny Grady Wow.
2: Out.
0: It's. They understand- also they
2: tried hard to kill him. Mm-hmm. They really they did. did.
0: They did. They, I, I, I certainly think they were trying their best. It's understandable that after that many times, Green may have gotten too big for
2: his britches.
1: Yeah, his might have run out.
0: In fact, on October 6, 1977, Green went to a dental appointment at the Brainerd Place office building in Lyndhurst, Ohio. What he didn't know was that Ferrito and other members of the Mafia had tapped his phone lines and knew about the appointment. The assassins brought two cars, one the bomb car and one the getaway car. Green was known to carefully park, like we talked about before, so that there would be cars on either side of his vehicle. He was always known to check out, make sure where he was parking. As Green went into the dentist's office, the car on his driver's side pulled out, by chance. This was a stroke of luck for the assassins, as they were then able to pull the bomb car in next to Green's vehicle. The bomb was set up so that shrapnel would fly from out of the bomb car and kill Danny. When Danny Green went to open his driver's side door after that dental appointment, the car next to him detonated, killing him instantly.
1: So they weren't even risking, the what was it, you called a command bomb? Was that the name of it earlier? You know, I, yeah, you're right. A
0: command bomb. So they yeah.
1: weren't even risking uh, that. They were, they were making sure it detonated before that.
0: Yes, yes. And, you know, the separate car, you know, it, it wasn't even, because they probably knew he'd know to check spaces on his
1: car exactly and that's honestly Um, like i don't think i would have ever thought of something like that like that's a very smart plan but it's also horrifying
0: yeah it's horrifying because also he would probably know to check the cars around him only he didn't see the car pull away from his
1: driver's side yeah he he would have to exactly like read the license plates or know exactly Mm -hmm. what make and model it was or something and That's a a very intense attention to detail, to have to do that constantly in your life.
2: Yes.
0: In the wake of Danny Green's murder, there was a massive FBI crackdown on organized crime. James Licavoli, Cleveland's mafia boss, was arrested. A wide-sweeping effort at every policing level was put into wiping out the mafia nationally, and a strike force was developed by the FBI. At least eight more men with mafia connections were also taken in at this time. A big break in the case of Danny Green's murder was that there was a witness. Her name was Deborah Spoff, and she was sitting with her husband in a car across the street. Deborah was a policeman's daughter and also an artist. She drew a picture of the man she saw in the getaway car, and it was used as evidence in convicting the assassins.
1: Wow. What a a lucky thing for law enforcement. Yeah.
0: However, authorities were still unable to link the bomb car to the getaway car, and so they weren't able to file charges yet.
1: Which, again, makes it very smart on the mafia's part with how they set that up. Mm -hmm.
0: However, the Cleveland Police Department was able to establish a link with some excellent detective work. Ohio license plates are required to have a tiny sticker identifying the vehicle on the lower right hand of the windshield. Everyone who buys or has a car must have one of those stickers.
1: Is it just like a, a registration sticker?
0: Yeah, almost, but I think Ohio- an Ohio specific
1: one. Okay. Cause there, there's a city sticker. I know that, um, you don't really drive a car in Chicago, but Chicago does require city stickers specifically. That is yeah. kind of in addition to your car's registration. Yeah, I think it it's similar if you don't have that. a city sticker.
2: OK, yeah, that makes sense.
0: I think similar to that. Yeah. So when authorities compared the plates on the vehicles, they realized that the serial numbers given on the stickers were sequential. They had bought the stickers for the bomb car and the getaway car at the same time. <laughs> With this what a thing evidence, to catch! <laughs> I know. With this evidence and the witness sketch, they were able to arrest Ray Ferrito for the murder of Danny Green.
2: Wow, that's amazing. It gets better.
0: Predictably, Ferrito flipped on his mafia compatriots. He implicated Jimmy Fradiano in the planning of the murder, and Fradiano was indicted for charges related to the bombing. Fearing for his safety, Fradiano agreed to become a government witness against the mafia.
1: Like, this is all, like, it's great because, like, go ahead, turn on on your fellow criminals. But at the same time, you you all are not really safe, I'm assuming. Like, there's so many ties here that I can't imagine... This is this going is, to actually work in your benefit.
0: <laughs> this is like a big deal. You're going to be a witness against the mafia? Meaning, yeah. and, and meaning, let me make it clear. He is going to testify against the mafia. That, yeah, that's
1: not just giving a statement. That That's the no, bigger deal.
0: No. Jimmy Fradiano is about to sing like a canary.
1: Oh, no. He, he's not safe. He's I'm glad he did it but he's not saved. I'm
0: I'm also glad he did it, and it's a really bad position to be in. Yeah. In return for his testimony, he pleaded guilty to the murder of Danny Green and received a five-year prison sentence, of which he served 21 months.
1: Which is nothing. Five years is nothing.
0: Right. And... At first, I thought about that, and I was like, that's a little annoying. And then he served only 21 months, and I was like, that's a little more annoying. And then I remembered that he said that he would inform on the mafia.
1: Yeah, he's not safe. It'd be smarter uh, for him to have a longer sentence.
0: You
2: should go back to jail. Which, funnily enough. And they're probably not
1: giving him protective custody or anything, because he's still a criminal.
2: Funnily
0: enough, in 1980... Fradiano again testifies for the government against the mafia. Oh no.
2: Digging a leading...
0: hole. Yep, he's
2: he's digging that hole.
0: This led to the racketeering convictions of five reputed mafia figures. All this considered, Fradiano then entered the witness protection program.
1: Okay, I feel like that's worth it at that point. Like now he needed time. it. <laughs>
2: Now's the time, yeah. he, he helped
1: the government and, and arrest multiple members of the mafia at this point.
0: Yeah. It's ok. We
1: can give him yeah, Jimmy, I
0: think Jimmy, I think you need to get into witness protection program like right now, like yesterday,
1: yeah, like you you still know a lot. I'm sure there's a whole lot more that you haven't talked yet. but keep talking, oh, yeah, like avoli
0: was also charged with the murder of Green and was acquitted.
2: Oh. But
0: this led to several of his mob crimes becoming public, and he was brought before a federal court for those crimes leading to his conviction.
1: Okay, you know what? That's fair. I'll take it. Mm -hmm. They had tapped his home
0: and caught him communicating with his lieutenants about mafia matters and caught him asking if Danny Green had been, quote, Taken care of. Oh, oh. Five years after Green's death, there was effectively no more organized crime in Cleveland. Wow. Sergeant kvasik believed that Green's death, quote, led to the absolute dissemination of La Cosa Nostra in this country. He said after the big arrests, such as Licavoli and Farido, it was like a dam broke across the country with MAID members turning evidence to the state. Oh. Kvasek still had questions, though. Green could have been taken down by Cleveland police well before he was, on charges of extortion. When Kvasek asked the Cuyahoga County prosecutor why the extortion charges weren't pursued, the prosecutor told him the FBI told him not to proceed. Hmm. Kvasek asked if it was the head of the Cleveland FBI. And the prosecutor replied, "No, higher." Oh, Kavasik then correctly guessed that J. Edgar Hoover himself had directed the prosecutor that the charges against Green should not proceed.
2: Wow! So that is the
0: tier echelon informant he was. J. Right? Edgar Hoover is in the picture. In the last grim detail about Danny Green the criminal and gangster, feudal, baron, or Robin Hood of Collinwood, is that when he was found, graphic content, his right arm was blown completely off his body. As the arm lay, the index finger was pointed out, the thumb pointed up, and the other three fingers curled under, making the shape of a gun. Kvasik said, quote, you know what I bet he was doing? He was pointing at the guys that got him, and he was going to get
2: all of them. And five years after his death, he had. Wow. That's crazy.
0: It, it, that's the wild roller coaster of Danny Green, the Irishman.
1: Okay, I have a request of your father. We all need yes. to sit down with a beer and I need to hear him tell this as well. Oh, I'm sure he would love
0: to fill you in on details. That sounds like a fantastic evening. It I was excited to share this case with you guys and maybe you could tell in this recording I was a little nervous. I really wanted to do it justice because my dad I, had met Danny Green, sure, but my dad used to know his kids and drink with his kids. And my grandpa would go to the bar and drink with Danny Green. So this this story is just so steeped in my family lore that I was really excited to share it. And I hope again that I given kind of a an accurate picture of Green for who he was.
1: I think this was fantastic i really enjoyed listening to this because you see these sorts of movies and you know that they're based off of some sort of truth and -hmm. it's really interesting to hear the real story and how i think a lot of times you realize how crazy it was so much more than a movie can portray
0: absolutely absolutely also it should be shared that Sergeant Kovacic is portrayed by Val Kilmer in the movie. Oh, really? (laughs) Yes, Val Kilmer.
1: Yeah, and like, as you said, as you were saying that your dad had told you, this stuff doesn't often affect you outside of this specific gang activity. Uh, As we kind of called out so specifically, there was that one person, the the neighbor, who was accidentally killed, Mm It, yes, you, you had said to me off air how your dad felt comfortable in his neighborhood despite literally being surrounded by this mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: and I think that shows us how much it was either hidden away or understandably ignored by people outside of the, the mafia and everything else with this
0: yeah, what I think I would just like my last point to be on this is in doing all my research, in watching the fictionalized movie, in looking up the many articles you'll see in the sources, and in watching the documentary with the real people who knew Green, I was actually, I was, of course, upset by the crimes. And the gang activity as anyone would be. But I was also quite moved about the number of people in this story who are just working extremely hard for their community. And people like Sergeant Kavasek, who are putting themselves on the bomb squad every day, you know, like putting yourself in the danger that something could detonate on you and then turning around and going to the local Catholic boys school to teach football. Like, I found so many more people like that who were looking to just have a brighter future than I found there were people engaged in this turf
2: war.
1: Well, and when you think about it, that's kind of how everything started, as, as we mentioned up top.
2: This all was because
1: you the people wanted to develop their own community. Danny Green wanted to develop his own community with people who he knew would understand him, which were other Irish immigrants. Mm-hmm. And that—that mm-hmm. first thing, how this all started, and it escalated into something else. But you can see through what you just said. Not everyone took that path and they developed no. this community that created Cleveland in reality. It wasn't just Absolutely. these neighborhoods. The whole area of Cleveland was developed in that way. And just like any other city in reality. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, thank you for bringing this forward to us today. This was a, like it was crazy, but it was really fun to listen <laughs> to.
0: Oh, good. I'm glad you liked it.
1: I've oh, been like that's... building this anticipation for so long to hear this case and it lived up oh. to everything you were saying.
0: Oh my god, good, good. Because it it's a it's a wild ride. Um and a wild ride that I appreciate taking because it makes me feel a little closer to my family. To kind yeah, of absolutely hear about their neighborhood and have a good conversation with my dad about what it was like growing up there in the 70s. And I never met my grandparents, as as I mentioned before. So the thought of my grandpa laughing and having a beer and enjoying the night, even if it was with Danny Green, uh, I was appreciative that it was able to bring that vivid image to my mind of him.
1: Oh, I'm sure. I hope that you all also enjoyed this as much as I did because I I, I promise you I really enjoyed this episode Um, but we want to thank you all for listening to have you heard about this case you can find us on Instagram at have you heard about this case pod you can also now find us on Twitter we have recently gotten ourselves a Twitter at H-Y-H-A-T-C pod or you can email us at Have you heard about this case at gmail.com. And we would also really love it if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcast. And thank you. We'll talk to you later.
2: Thank you so much. Bye.